0: podcast home to stories that haunt these stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language listener discretion is advised Been holding the brown glass bottle in my hand so long it's become warm. I've been hanging on to it for years. And I roll it now, watching the liquid slosh about inside. And hope it'll still work. Next to me, Jake stirs a little in his sleep. let out a little sigh and then relaxes again. My stomach heaves with panic. Oh shit, I, I can't do this, I, I, I can't. I squint to look at the road ahead, which is shimmering in August heat, and sigh myself. No, I, I, I have to. I, I have to do it. We had celebrated IOTA. <laughs> the World Health Organization hailed it as... The true end of the COVID-19 pandemic, a strain that spread like wildfire. Incubated in 48 hours and caused no real symptoms. It dominated the world for 11 weeks in 2025, or so we were told by various monitoring bodies. And then it was finally and mercifully over. Five and a bit years after the world had first ground to a halt over the outbreak of COVID-19, we were rid of it. IOTA had raged across the planet, infecting everyone, then, finding its pool of naive hosts empty, burned out. That's not to say that the late 20s had brought much joy overall. The weather had continued to get warmer and more erratic, the global economic downturn caused by the pandemic ground on, the cost of billionaire greed continued, but still, COVID was gone. We'd beaten it. That's what we thought. Feels like such a long time ago now. I look at Jake's sleeping face, his his eyelashes lie thick and dark on his cheek. His rosebud of a mouth is slightly open, and his thick dark hair is sticking slightly to his dewy forehead. I'll wait, I think. Let him dream. The 2030s had dawned full of optimism. There had been a breakthrough with solar that had allowed us to harness and store the increasingly vicious sun's rays. AI was successfully running air traffic control and hospital bed management, and the new global equity laws following the Glasgow G20 uprising in 2029 had already begun to dismantle the fortunes of the worst of the oligarchs and redistribute the wealth to the rest of the world again. It had felt such a buoyant time. That was when Jenny and I decided to reproduce. The new repro laws had come in with the global equity stuff. Of course, it was eugenics, we knew that. But, but by then, there were more than 9 billion of us, and, and lots of young people had decided not to procreate anyway, so it felt less of an interposition somehow. Anyway, Jenny and I had been together for three years by 2030, and already in our 30s, it, it felt like now or never situation. Repro application wasn't too grueling, really—a a blood test, a physical fitness test, and a couple of psych appointments to make sure we'd make acceptable parents. <sighs> I should have failed mine. We heard back after six weeks that we'd been granted leave to reproduce, but as there was an ongoing population imbalance, had to report to a repro clinic to proceed. There were too many girls. They said fifty-eight percent of naturally conceived babies were now female. They weren't sure why. Maybe all the artificial hormones from the contraception in the water, or maybe the microplastics, or maybe the shifting climate, or, well, they, they weren't sure. Anyway, they could fix it, they said. They'd monitor Jen's ovaries, watching to see when she was about to ovulate. Then, when it was a go time, they'd take a sperm sample from me, rinse it with a substance to kill off all the sperm carrying an X chromosome, then inject what was left, IUI-style, directly into Jenny's uterus. We would have a son. <laughs> It was the least romantic thing I'd ever done. Laboring away in that little windowless cupboard of a room, scrolling frantically through risque pics Jen had messaged me that morning, knowing she was lying right then in another larger windowless room, naked under a paper gown, feet in stirrups, waiting for me to deliver the goods to her via the rinsing team. But it worked. First time. Three weeks later, I walked in on her in the shower, saw the veins standing out darker on her swollen breasts and said, smiling, Jen, you're pregnant. (laughs) The clinic agreed with me the next day. Wills, we never called him William, was born nine months later. He was absolute perfection. And we were thrilled with him. So much so that we went back two years later and were granted Jake in the same manner. It's only four years since Jake was born. It feels like a different age now. The first warning signs were in 2031, but of course we didn't notice, not then. It it, it got the elderly first and, brutally, nobody really cared. Dementia was so common. Nearly 60% of over-80s had succumbed and many in their 70s were showing signs that the medical world dismissed the first symptoms as imaginary or dementia-related. Headaches, vision issues, auditory hallucinations, then a kind of psychosis quickly followed by total functional disintegration, coma, death. In January of 2032, someone did a paper on it, published by the Journal of Dementia Care, asking if this new flavour of dementia they were seeing was related to the widespread use of cannabidiols. Letters to the editor were mostly lambasting the authors, but, but there were a few from other doctors saying they were seeing the same thing, that, that more investigation was needed. We didn't investigate until 6 year olds started getting it, which, which took another six or seven months. They were well, and, and in many cases still working, so that caught the government attention faster. Their symptoms were similar to the older cohort. They would show up at the GP saying their head had hurt for days, or go to the optician and say that their almost new glasses didn't seem to work right anymore, and they were seeing blotches and flashes in their vision from the strain. Or they'd sit down for a hearing test and ask the audiologist if there was a way to quiet the voice of their neighbour, who they had begun hearing through the wall, but were now hearing all day, every day. Modern medicine worked its magic then. CTs, MRIs and functional MRIs, EEGs, lumbar punctures and and blood tests that took anything from three hours to six weeks to come back. By the time it had a name, the 50-year-olds had started to get it too. And every human over 90 and around half of those over 80 on the planet was already dead. It felt far away and insignificant to us back then. Jenny was about to give birth to Jake when the first big discovery was made, and we were arranging a move into a larger home to make room for him. Repro accommodation was bigger and nicer than the coupled quarters we'd been in before. The only reason we'd not moved when Wills was born was because of mum. My mum was dying then, you see. Not of dementia, nothing like that. No, she, she had cancer. It started in a fallopian tube, but was already in her liver and lungs when they discovered it. The older singles person's homes happened to be near the coupled quarters we were in then, and we're told housing would stay put to help care for her. I was the only child, so it, it fell to me. Jenny helped as I allowed it, but but she was busy with wills, and and, and then a second pregnancy, and I, and I didn't let her much. They did try treatment for mum, But she told me on the way to her first appointment that she didn't think it would work, and she was right, though it it did give her a few more years. I held her hand when she died. It was a month before Jake was born. She went peacefully, and and, and at home, which was a mercy. I had gone the day after the funeral to empty her home. Housing was at a premium still, and the turnover expected at the single adult blocks was typically short. But when I met the janitor in the gardens on my way in, she had smiled and told me there was no rush to empty the place if I wasn't feeling up to it. But don't you need it back for the next person? I'd asked, surprised. The next person, Q, is getting shorter by the day, ducky, she had replied, enigmatically. They called it novel leukoencephalopathy. first. <laughs> Most of those over 70 were dead before they had drilled down and renamed it IOTA-induced subacute Penencephalitis, or ISP for short. The press called it the COVID crazies then. I guess a lot of the really great scientists are in their 40s and 50s because it took a surprisingly long time from there for them to hit the full truth. And I suppose that was because they were all dying of it too. But they did figure it out eventually. It was a prion disease. It it turned out that IOTA, the the asymptomatic COVID strain, the adored herald of the end of the pandemic, had left a little calling card. Older strains had latched onto the olfactory neurons, causing the body to destroy them, and with them, temporarily, one's sense of smell. As I said, IOTA was symptomless, but it seemed it still liked those olfactory neurons iota climbed up them and set up a camp in the brain and there it stayed dormant and silent until something triggered it to begin attacking again at which point it began to fold proteins and in doing so completely ravaged the brain they didn't know the trigger time seemed to be the main one mediated somewhat by age maybe since the old got sick first It could happen with measles, they said, this sort of late symptom where years after recovering your brain suddenly misfired and destroyed itself. Of course, that was rare, since there had been a vaccine for measles for decades. But there had been no vaccines that mediated iota. We hadn't thought we needed one. It killed Jenny's parents within weeks of one another in 2033. They were in their mid-60s. They lived in another part of the country, and we only visited once during their illness. Her mum, Sheila, had called her late one night to say her dad, Mark, couldn't get up. What? Wait. I'd woken up to Jen, sat up in bed beside me, rubbing her eyes, holding the phone to her ear. Mum, say that again? She listened, frowning for a few more seconds, then said, We'll come. Phone an ambulance. She disconnected the call, then turned to me. Pack a nappy bag and get the boys up. Something's really wrong. What did she say? I asked, but I'd caught the urgency already and was getting out of bed. She said... Jen tilted her head at me as if she couldn't believe it, even as she said it. Dad won't come to the table for supper because he can't get up. Because he's cut his feet off. We raced there. But it still took four hours. Anything lower than a Category 1 ambulance call could take a while back then, back when ambulances existed at all. And and we arrived before them. The boys had fallen asleep in their seats, so I stayed in the car with them while Jen ran to let herself in, calling quietly to her parents. There was a brief silence, and then the muffled sound of Jen screaming inside electrified me. I jumped in the seat, then leapt out of the car and ran into the house. It's hard to even describe the scene inside. Her dad had cut his feet off. The living room was a was an absolute bloodbath. He sat so pale he was almost transparent, unconscious but just barely alive, making intermittent gasping noises in his green winged back chair. A long, thin-bladed knife was clutched in his right hand. Blood dripped still but slowly, thickly, from the severed stumps of his ankles. Sheila had been in the kitchen when we arrived, but was now in the doorway. Despite the horror of the scene, she was smiling. Oh, lovely. Visitors, she beamed. Mum? Jen was as white as a sheet and trembling. Have you had a long drive? Sheila went on. Mark seems to be in an ignorant mood today. I've been calling him to the table for supper for hours, but but he won't come. Never mind, she smiled again. More for us, eh? Then she stood aside, revealing the brightness of the kitchen, the table fully laid with the best flatware. In the centre, on the blue platter, surrounded by parsnips and roast potatoes, a little charred, but still vividly identifiable were two roasted feet. The ambulance had arrived just then, which was fortunate because we'd had no idea what to do. Two blank-faced paramedics had gently persuaded Sheila into the back, ascertained that Mark was now dead, called the police and made sympathetic noises at Jen's frantic distress. Later, in one of the new mega-hospitals, a stern consultant told us that her parents had suffered an acute psychotic illness, likely due to ISP, but that could only be confirmed when a post-mortem mark was completed. Jen had asked what we should do about Sheila, who at that point still looked well. We had had a tortured conversation driving behind the ambulance about not exposing the boys to harm by having her move closer to us because she'd clearly completely lost the plot, but but the consultant flipped a hand. ISP is a rapid illness Once it takes hold at this age, he said She can remain here in the ISP unit For the remaining 7-10 to 10 days she has left When Jen asked if she could visit with her mother There, the consultant laughed And replied, sure If you think you want to We, we got a hotel, the, ha- the house was a, a crime scene uh, And after an afternoon nap I took the boys out to find some food While Jen went to try visit Sheila She phoned me after only about 15 minutes and asked if I'd come get her. Is she not well? I had faltered. She she doesn't know me. Jen was crying softly. Doesn't know who I am. She seemed to think I was there to give her an enema. She was taking her clothes off that the nurses had to subdue her. That night, we drove home again, and the consultant had his secretary call us four days later to say Sheila was dead. At first, the government tried to mitigate some of the chaos it caused. But it wasn't like COVID. People wanted to survive COVID. Wanted those they loved to survive. And they were mostly willing to do certain things, or not do them to that end. Stay at home, wear a mask, whatever. But this was different. Firstly, it became obvious early on that we weren't going to survive it if we got it. It was 100% fatal. Secondly, most of the people causing the chaos were acutely ill and the psychotic are poorly placed to understand and obey social rules. By, by 2035, folk in their 40s were starting to get sick and, and from there, it, it, it all sort of fell apart. The oldest had just died, mostly. The younger went through brief psychosis on their way to disintegration, but for the youngest, those about 45 or less, the psychosis lasted much longer and was much more violent. I was at work one day when my boss, Anna, came and asked me to come look. I was an architect back then. We had an amazing office. It was on the 15th floor and the exterior walls were all glass so we could look out across our city day or night. We'd not had any contracts for a few months at that point. Nobody was building as the world fell apart. But I still showed up every day because, well, what else do you do? As the weeks had passed, fewer and fewer of my colleagues came in through and and that week it had only been myself and Anna. Anyway, um... She called me over to her window and I'd gone. Then the two of us stood in contemplation, watching seven members of the tech app company that worked in the office immediately below ours playing some sort of ball game in the terrace garden two floors down. It, It seemed to be a cross between football and volleyball. The ball was their CEO's head His body was propped on a bench to one side, centrally placed as if he were the umpire. We took in the scene together. As we watched, the young intern with the the pastel blue hair appeared to score a goal, and in celebration, she climbed onto the enclosing wall and performed an elegant swan dive onto the concrete 13 floors below. This is the zombie apocalypse, I said looking down at a crumpled body in its blooming puddle of red. It is. Anna nodded. She turned away from the glass and looked at me. Let's not come to work anymore, she said. "Mm," I replied. I was thinking that too. I'm 43, she said. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know I don't want to end up kicking your head around the office. It was on the news this morning, I said. The oldest person in the world is apparently 54, though I can't believe they really know that. I paused, suddenly choked with emotion. Anna. I don't I don't know what to say. I said then. Thank you. And goodbye. And good luck. And what the fuck is happening? And and, and why and, and all of that I, I, I trailed off. She reached out and squeezed my arm and smiled a small tight smile. It's too late for all of that. She said then turned back to the game outside. It's too late for everything. For a few weeks, I stayed at home, Jenny and I reliving the old lockdown days of our late teens, driving each other mad and watching TV 20 hours a day. The boys seemed just happy to have us around. Wills had been thrilled when we stopped taking him to school within only a few months of him starting. We wanted to take them out to parks, to fun places, but it was too dangerous. The the world had quite literally gone mad. About a month after I'd stopped work, the TV channels began to dwindle, and then the power began to cut off intermittently. Our home, like all homes built since 2029, had solar cells and batteries, plus heat source pump heating and a tiny wind turbine on the roof, but, but we still relied on the national grid for times when there was no sun or wind, and the batteries were empty. We began cooking extra in advance so that we knew we'd have food for a given day, but our food stores were dwindling too. We'd stocked up like preppers after Sheila and Mark died and had done better than most because of it. Sometimes to supplement our stockpile, I'd go out at night into the neighborhood and strip the pantries of the homes of the deceased or absent. The last straw came the day I turned on a tap and what looked and smelled like raw sewage flowed out. Jenna and I decided to leave the city. There, there, were, there were too many people and, and, and too many of them were ill. It, it was too dangerous. And even if we stayed indoors, we'd already been keeping the doors barricaded with a stack of furniture for weeks by then. Plus, we reasoned so many were dead at this point that we could always find an empty house for the night if we looked. We could go somewhere more remote, somewhere the boys could play outside and, and have a bit of a life. I stole our neighbor's ancient minivan, my first overtly criminal act as he was still alive just when I went into his home and took the keys. Swiftly followed by my second, which was to drive it to a supermarket and stack it completely full of shoplifted or or maybe looted bottled water and ready to eat foods. As I emptied a shelf of peanut butter into a trolley I thanked my lucky stars our boys had no allergies. It was high calorie and stable and, and, and if you added a vitamin tablet every day you could live on it a long time. I went and emptied a shelf of gummy vitamins in too. We went north, reasoning the population density was lower there. The the minivan was a, a dirty old thing that ran on actual fuel, which was why I'd taken it. The automated network had malfunctioned to a standstill and most privately owned cars were now electric. This old beast ran on actual petroleum fuel though, which was handy, as I could siphon that out of any other old abandoned vehicles we came across. We had to take a torturous route along tiny roads. Most of the motorways were blocked by massive pile-ups of mangled metal and tangled bodies. A mixture of network cars crashing when the automated safety infrastructure melted down and all the other humans who sought to flee this thing that was inside their skull and couldn't be evaded. We'd been on the move for about 10 days when we found a good place. It it was a, a tiny cottage in the middle of the moorland. The previous occupants were in the shed outside. One had been nailed to a wall with a neat row of equidistant nails driven through each arm from palm to elbow. I, I had assumed there was a religious theme to it all, as the other looked like it had a crown of thorns. On closer inspection, I saw that he had fired nails from the gun into his skull at slightly wackier intervals and angles. Once I'd ascertained they were dead, and I slipped back out of the shed and padlocked the door closed them aside, this place was fine. It would do. We unloaded the van and dug around in the couple's belongings for fresh sheets to make clean places for ourselves and the boys to sleep. They had a coal fire and we lit it and enjoyed the novelty of it. Jen showed the boys how you could bake potatoes in the embers. We'd not seen butter for months but when they were done we mashed the insides with oil and salt and, and they were as good as any have had. We broke open the shed couple's stash of powdered milk and had hot chocolate, too. We'd been there three days when Jen got ill. She woke me at about 5am on the fourth morning, whispering that she had a migraine. (sighs) A migraine? I'd sat, bolt upright in bed. Just a migraine. As far as I can tell, Jen shrugged. I'm seeing weird spots and my head hurts. Shit I got up and began pacing about uncertainly What should we do? Do? Jen squinted at me She did look Just like she did when she had a migraine Do you have meds for migraine? I asked her I doubt it She laid back again I've not had one since Jake was a baby I'll look, I said, unable to sit still I dug through the medicines we'd brought, and then through the meds we'd found around the place when we arrived, but but there was nothing. I went back into the bedroom where Jen was lying in the dark. Perfectly still, there's there's nothing, I whispered. Do you want normal painkillers? No, no, it's okay, they won't touch it. She didn't open her eyes. There was a pharmacy, I say too loud, and she flinches, sorry, I, I whisper again was a pharmacy at that last village i could go and look there jen nodded look for sumatriptan spray it's it's the fastest but if there's none then pills would do i remember her hair was fanned out on the pillow like a dark halo she was beautiful my beautiful jenny I moved quickly. Seeing her unwell with the spectre of ISP hovering was too much to bear. I tiptoed downstairs but when I got to the bottom I heard a garbled voice. Jackie? It was Jake, his thumb still in his mouth. I calculated fast in my head and then decided to take him with me. Jen was in no state to look after him and once he's awake he's hard to persuade back to sleep. I grabbed some water and cereal bars in the kitchen, then wrapped him in Jen's coat and carried him out to the minivan with me, gave him breakfast to eat as we drove. It was only about a 20 minute journey to the pharmacy and previous looters had already smashed their way in and taken all the opioids and antibiotics and insulin. But I found in the mess of bottles and boxes on the shelves and floor that they had left the triptans. I searched out a pack of pills and a nasal spray and then headed back out to Jake in the van We'd only been gone an hour. That's what I keep coming back to. It it had only been an hour. When we came in, Jake went straight to the TV. He turned it on and began to scroll through the channels, trying to find one broadcasting. I could hear running water as I jogged up the stairs. Jen wasn't in bed anymore she was in the bathroom with Wills I'm not going to think about the inside of that room I'm just going to think about the closed door before I opened the door and after I closed it again but not in between all I will think about the in between is that I did my best my best I had to stop Jen so I did and I had to save Wills and I tried but it was too late Jake and I left the house again within the hour after coming back out of the bathroom I just threw Armfuls of food and clothes back into the van and then went and got him. He'd been watching TV all that time. It's been a week since then. Uh, Two people eat way less than four, and we've been doing okay. We've been sleeping in the van. I've just been driving aimlessly. Jake hasn't asked for his mum once. I, I think he must know. The radio news has been grim. They say the ISP prion is inheritable and that the kids won't be safe even though they weren't born until after IOTA had been and gone. This extra stab of hopelessness temporarily floored me. Even if I could survive long enough, keep him safe long enough, that, that Jake could survive on his own. He can't because it'll get him too. I stopped listening to the news. I'm too late to keep him safe. I I was already too late the day he was born. We're parked on a little road somewhere. I, I don't know exactly where. There are trees nearby and fields. Uh, Nothing you can see from here would remind you of what's happening. What's happened. No crashed cars or bodies or dead farm animals. Not anything, really. Just nature. Which is reassuringly unmoved by all the human catastrophe. I have to do it now. I... I I, ca- I can't. I-, I have to. I started seeing spots in my vision last night, <clears throat> and this morning my head is pounding. I, I have to do it. Jake is beginning to stir beside me. I think what could happen if I if I don't do it. <laughs> About roasted feet and the intern's goal. About Will's face, frozen forever in alarm and confusion under the water. No, no, not that, not that. Close the door. I have to do it. I carefully uncap the bottle and draw ten mil of it up to an empty syringe, letting my eyes linger on the label for a second. I took it from my mother's house after she died, morphine, sulfate, 20 milligrams, one mil solution. It was for a pain, but I wasn't allowed to give it, the palliative care nurse was the only one allowed to touch it. Daddy? Jake still sounds tired. There's a lump in my throat, this size of the moon, and I can't answer him. I, I try to smile instead. Is that medicine, daddy? He asks, looking at the syringe. It is a choke out. I need you to take it, buddy. But it doesn't taste very nice. I've got a lolly for you to have after it. It's cola. It's cola. I unwrap the lollipop and hold it out. Here, you grab this, and you can put it in your mouth as soon as the medicine is down. He does it like it's nothing, swallows it down with a little grimace, then sticks the lolly in his mouth, smiling at me in relief around the paper stick. I hold him in my lap afterwards. He goes back to sleep quite quickly, and within half an hour, I can tell he's gone. I let myself lose it then. (laughs) I scream and sob and rock his little body. The dull agony in my skull grows and grows and I try and focus on what I have saved him from and not what I have done to him. I I want to take the rest of this bottle myself, but, but I won't. I open the window and throw it, hearing it smash on the asphalt. I deserve to suffer. That's the trade. I will protect him from terrible suffering, but I will pay for it with mine own. I must have dozed off because I waked in the sound of rumbling. Something large passes the van, temporarily blocking the light. I'm disoriented. Is it dark already? No, 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 I'm, I'm almost blind now. Jake is light and stiff in my lap. Through the blotches in my vision, he, he, he is pale and bluish, like a wax doll. Suddenly there is this blinding light, and then the door, the door beside me is pulled open and, and air rushes in. Are you well, sir? How, how old are you? A female voice asks. I'm, I'm not, I say, turning towards but, but unable to see the speaker. I'm 37. Yeah. Medic! They appear to be calling over their shoulder to someone else. Okay, one adult, there's a kid, but it's, it's too late for him, uh, but not the adult. This one needs the curative. The voice shouts, footsteps then approaching and receding. Is is, is this the psychosis, I wonder? Is is this what happens? Is my brain creating all of this? There's a sharp sting in my neck and and then a hiss right by my ear. What are you doing? I I, I cry out. It's it's a male voice that answers this time. I'm sorry, sir. The voice says, I I didn't realize you were conscious. I've administered Oligonuke 481c. You've done what? I I can't make sense of what he's saying. The sting in my neck is, is a hot. Ache spreading down my arm and into my skull. The cure, sir. I I can hear the elation in his voice, the joy. I've given you the cure. was written by Beck Stranger and narrated by Ben Chandler. Our Patreon is officially live, so for more stories that haunt, as well as a behind-the-scenes look at what we do and why we do it, please join our Patreon at Patreon Pod. You can follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at Please pleaseleavepod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com and our website is pleaseleavepod.com.